0: You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Dr. Andy Oishi is a Honolulu surgeon who took leave from his work at Kuwakini Hospital, Queen's Medical Center, and the University of Hawaii Medical School this summer. He was answering a call to travel overseas to help in Ukraine. He took time out to talk with us about his experience.
1: Yeah, it's so upsetting, so disheartening to see what's going on in Ukraine right now with the most recent missile strikes, I watched some of the videos and and those are streets uh, that I was driving on uh, just a few months ago, and so it's really quite real that war and the devastation uh, is not something far away, but actually very close to people that have been there or people that live there now.
0: I'm sure your family is grateful that you're out of harm's way at this point as they see things escalate.
1: Yeah, I think my wife especially had a piece about me going. She wasn't necessarily worried about my safety. Because I, I really felt called uh, by God to go. And so it wasn't, that wasn't the most important thing. Safety wasn't the most important thing on our minds. It was what we were going to do, what God was calling us to do. We wanted to make sure that was done. And I think it was for us, for me, as we did this mission.
0: And your missions were organized by the Samaritan's Purse. That's correct. Yeah, explain to our listeners what that organization does.
1: Samaritan's Purse is a Christian nonprofit organization that does a lot of things. One of their arms is called World Medical Mission, where they have doctors and nurses working in hospitals all across the world. And part of that organization also is called the Samaritan's Purse Disaster Assistance Response Team. It's a team of medical professionals and people who can help with logistics, who can build a hospital in any place in the world that needs it. So. It started a number of years ago when two doctors went to places like Somalia and Rwanda. It's continued over the years. I first started working with them in 2017 during the war in Mosul, when Iraq was trying to take back Mosul from ISIS. And it's continued through a number of other deployments through Haiti last year when the earthquake happened, and then this year in Ukraine.
0: And you've been involved with a lot of these missions before.
1: This is my third mission. So I, I went to Mosul in Iraq, eighty last year, and then this year to Ukraine. But most of the people who work on these darts uh, do this as either a full-time uh, volunteer or full-time employment. And so they've been on dozens of disaster response.
0: Well, you know, I have a niece who lives in Pennsylvania, and I believe she w- went to Italy at the height of covid Uh, to Uh help, you know, because that country was just having having a heck of a time and needed trained nurses and they needed to spell their workforce.
1: Yeah. Again, Samaritan's Purse did deploy a hospital to Italy at that time.
0: We did talk to one doctor, a Kaiser doctor, uh, who went to Ukraine and was helping there in one of the uh, border areas. I was curious because at that time we were still dealing with COVID big time over here. Uh, And yet, as you saw, you know, pictures on TV every night, you didn't see people with masks. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what it was like in the area that you were at, but you came down with COVID during your trip.
1: I came down with COVID, I think on the way there, somehow in my travels, I came down with COVID because I started to get symptoms about three days after arriving in Europe. So I did have to isolate for my first five days and then I was still masking and staying away from people for another five days. So it was about 10 days into the mission before I could really start working and getting things done.
0: But as far as, you know, the masking and the distancing, I mean, that's kind of hard to do when you're in a war zone.
1: Well, Samaritan's Purse wasn't deployed directly to the war zone. We had a home office in the capital city of Kiev and we were deployed in various other areas in Eastern Ukraine that were trying to get supplies delivered to all the hospitals in the war zone. We were using a delivery system based on local churches. And these church members were taking our supplies and delivering it to the war zone. But we had to, we were part of coordinating those supplies, getting them delivered and making sure that the supplies were used properly. So we weren't directly in a war zone, although the cities we were in were hit by cruise missiles, just like what we saw yesterday. But in general, we weren't seeing battle run casualties on a day-to-day basis.
0: But just the COVID situation, you know, I mean, if you yourself came down and, and I don't know what kind of accommodations they have for isolation.
1: Yeah, well, we were staying in pretty basic hotels, but when you had COVID, you had your own room, which was nice, and you didn't have to double up with someone else. But we weren't really too concerned about COVID. There did not seem to be a lot of COVID there, although a few of the team members did contract COVID even during our time there and had to get isolated but for the most part it was like Honolulu is now not not a lot of masks restaurants were open or places to eat things like that were open malls were open at least in the cities that were not in the direct line of battle
0: what was it like for you you know as far as the the language barrier people
1: all speak Ukrainian or they speak Russian and so we had to have an interpreter they became really our some of our best workers they were we became close friends we still keep in contact but they did everything that we had to do had to be done through an interpreter or through uh, Google Translate which is quite good as a matter of fact so a lot of the reading of documents we did I did through Google Translate but the talking to people were always through an interpreter and there are some people in the government or in the Ministry of Health who can speak English so we were able to get by communicating quite well
0: you mentioned that you're you're still in contact with some of the people that you work with in that city Um, what are you hearing now
1: Well, there was a lot of gladness as Ukraine was making progress and taking back territory. There was a lot of hope. And there still is, I think. But I haven't heard from anyone after this latest missile strike, but I would suspect there is a renewed sense of worry and concern. Most of the people that we worked there were, were men, because men are not allowed to leave Ukraine at the present time, at least men between the ages of 16 and 60. And a lot of these men have sent their families over the border into Poland or Germany as refugees while they had to stay behind. So a lot of them were hoping to be reunited, but I think with this new round of escalation of the war, their families are still going to stay as refugees in in neighboring countries. So there's a sadness there still.
0: And what's the takeaway for you?
1: Well, the thing that just strikes you is how beautiful Ukraine is, how wonderful the people are, it's such a marvelous country and then to see it under attack and things just destroyed for no good reason just out of sheer madness is heartbreaking and devastating to see the families that were split up or family members were killed to see what they're going through the interpreter and driver that I worked with the whole time I was there had lost everything because he lived in a apartment building just outside of Kiev and when Russia first invaded the capital city. Russian tanks were indiscriminately shooting into condominium buildings, apartment buildings, and he lost everything in that attack. And he's now trying to make a life for himself with his family separated away in Germany. Just a lot of stories of sadness coming from
0: Ukraine. I ran into a doctor swimming at the beach, and he w- was volunteering with Doctors Without Borders, and he was injured mm-hmm. in Egypt. You know, I mean, w- what do you say to your uh, fellow physicians out there or healthcare workers who may w- have this great desire to go help, you know, and go to these hot spots?
1: Yeah, there is a lot of opportunities to serve worldwide in areas that are under attack. And as a physician in practice, there always seems to be something that keeps you from going there's you're, you're too busy you don't have time some other there's always a reason not to go and I think when you really have a desire to do these things you just have to put those things aside because there's never a good time there's never a time when everything falls into place and you can go you just have to decide that you're going to go and serve in, in places that need you and then everything else has to become a lesser importance because there's never going to be a good time.
0: And even if you're in harm's way, I mean, that's just a risk you take. Yeah, as a Christian, harm's way is
1: not as big a concern as really being compelled to do the things that Christ calls you to. I love what the head of our organization says. As Christians, we run to the fire. We don't run away from the fire. And that really resonates with me. It's, It's just this desire to help where we can. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I didn't do a whole lot in Ukraine, but I did help few people who are working alongside. We helped in deliveries in, in ways that I, I don't know what the impact was. But you know, I didn't stop a cruise missile. I didn't, you know, man a hospital. I, it, I did things on, on the grand scale of the ward, very small, but it still was something I felt called to do. And actually, for me, it was really a rewarding experience.
0: Anything else you want to share with our listeners just about your experience?
1: I would ask them to pray for Ukraine and pray for the end to the war. It's a beautiful country, and when the war is over, that we go there and serve and get to meet the people that have been through all this. You know, we are a worldwide community, and when one part of our world is hurting, it really affects all of us, and I think we're seeing that now.
0: But thank you so much, Doctor. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Catherine. That was Dr. Andy Oishi, who recently returned from a month-long stint in Ukraine. Uh, Oishi is on the faculty at the University of Hawaii's John A. Burns School of Medicine. He spoke with us this week about how difficult it has been to watch the battles intensify in the city of Kiev, where he served in a, on a humanitarian mission with the group Samaritan's Purse.
2: Support for HPR comes from St. Andrew's Schools in downtown Honolulu, announcing an admissions open house for girls in grades 7 to 12, 9 to 11, Saturday, November 5th. Registration at org slash admissions.
0: And, you know, for today's reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat uh, has a story about the communication styles of Hawaii's gubernatorial candidates. Joining us this morning is reporter Blaise Lovell. Good morning.
3: Hey, morning, Catherine.
0: Yeah. So you folks recently had the two candidates on for a forum. Uh, So uh, what do they uh, what do you envision as far as their communication styles?
3: Right. So the reason why, you know, we wanted to take a look at this, as a lot of people are well aware, Governor Ige came under, you know, a lot of criticism for how he communicates with uh, within his own administration with lawmakers, with the public. That was all highlighted, of course, during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people complained about, you know, his administration's slow response to things. Um, you know, Duque and Josh Green, they both promise very different uh, communication styles. They both want to be more direct, more open, uh, quicker to uh, jump on things that come before them. Uh, but, but, you know, there was a kind of a... Uh, a lot of tension that built up between them during one of our forums, and it kind of highlighted, you know, this thing that, uh, um, you, you know, say what you will about Governor David Iggy, but he always kept his cool and he didn't, you know, hold any grudges. That uh, How they reacted at some of the forums, you know, it kind of shows that both of them are kind of quick to react. Uh, you know, neither of them would say that they're defensive. Uh, they think that they're very passionate about, you know, the issues that they um, – um, Uh, are are concerned with Uh, Josh Green when I talked to him yesterday he actually kind of surprised me he said you know I'm kind of a sensitive guy and I wasn't expecting to uh, to hear that from him but he you know he said he'll go on the offensive if he feels like um, there's being, there's personal attacks being made against him. And, you know, Dukayona, he's a former judge. He had to oversee a lot of high-profile cases. He believes he won't lose his temper or lose his cool, even during high-pressure situations, because he says, you know, you just can't do that if you're a judge.
0: Well, you know, you've got two uh, seasoned, uh, you know, gentlemen. You know, you've got uh, one that's trained as a lawyer, one that's trained as a doctor, uh, and they've got, you know, fairly easygoing styles, Uh, You know, and and again, it just uh, remains to be seen, you know, if either of those gentlemen gets in, you know, what what kind of, uh, I guess, policy that they're going to have going through, you know, just as far as communication and uh, transparency.
3: Right, and Josh Green stressed that uh, point, too. You know, he said that uh, a lot of that sensitivity and how he communicates, he developed that style while he was a doctor. You know, you've got to have good bedside manners. Iona, too, talked about, you know, his experience as a trial attorney for the city and, you know, of course, as a judge. And, you know, both of them said that one thing they'd like to have is weekly press briefings with the media, and Green brought wants to bring in some other experts. He talked about having, you know, his, the same whiteboard he used during COVID He wants to kind of continue that if he's elected. Uh, Duke Ono also wants to have regular updates. And, you know, how they'd approach the legislature would be a little different. Josh Green, you know, is a former state senator. He said he'd actually be going down there to lawmakers' offices and talking on the benches and railings outside of the committee rooms uh, while a session is going on. Duke Ono would take a little bit more of a different approach. He'd want his uh, department directors, you know, in charge of things like the economy, in charge of agriculture overseeing tourism, you know, um, on, on energy policy. He'd want those department heads to be communicating directly with the committee chairs and the legislature who oversee those areas so that, so that they can build, you, you know, policy uh, policies together because it would be a little bit more challenging for Iona if he's in because, uh, you know, of course, he's a Republican and a building full of Democrats. But, you know, he believes if, you know, if Lingle was able to do it, he'd, he can too
0: yeah, so uh, I guess we'll we'll just have to wait and see you know um, how this all plays out. but certainly both gentlemen have uh, you know very uh, good communication skills, uh, and uh, you know they're they're seasoned lawmakers. Uh, and uh, you know, we do have uh, Governor Ige. He's a engineer by trade, you know more methodical and uh, thoughtful. Uh, and you know, like you said, that criticism that maybe he just uh, didn't come out uh, forceful enough, uh, and took too much time to uh, to weigh things,
3: right? And Iggy doesn't deny, you know that communication. It isn't his strong suit, but uh, during the pandemic, you know, he had to make a lot of really hard decisions and as he told our editorial board in August, you know, it, it's a lot different, you know, being able to be on the outside and criticize those decisions. It's a, it, it's much different when, you know, you're actually the one that has to make those decisions. <laughs> so it's really yet to be seen, you know, how Josh Green and Ducana would really react if they were put into, you know, gate shoes.
0: Yeah, well, we do have the, the stadium issue hanging over us and Questions about how that uh, will play out, and whether one of those two gentlemen, you know, is going to have to deal with whatever decision is made, uh, you know, on on that uh, uh, big project. But thank you so much, uh, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze uh with today's reality check. To read the full story, head to civilbeat.org.
2: Support for today's programming comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting The Moth, an evening of storytelling, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com, presented by Hawaii Public Radio and Hawaii Theater Center.
0: Forty votes, that's all, separated the top two candidates in the race for Hawaii County District 2 during the August primary election. The district covers Ahilo Bayfront to Waianui Nui and much of the central part of the island, including Mauna Kea. Uh, This seat is currently occupied by Aaron Chung, who is term-limited this year. So fresh faces are vying for one of the most populated districts on the Big Island. Former Fire Battalion Chief Matthias Cush faces off with Jen Kagiwata, who is a legislative assistant for the Hawaii County Council. We talked to uh, Cush this morning about the biggest issues facing Hawaii County residents.
4: We're not unique in the state that um, affordability of, of housing, of food, of child care, all the quote-unquote necessities of life have all been impacted by, you know, external factors and then factors that are unique to Hawaii. Last year, when people started approaching me and saying, you know, you should really run, you have all these unique experiences and background to bring to the table that are kind of uniquely qualifies you at this point. And and I really, I thought about it and, and it really made me step up. I have a background in affordable housing. We used to call it starter homes, but that's a big reason. And then, you know, working for the county for 25 years, I saw kind of from the inside a lot of things that we could change for the future. So those are some of the aspects that, that uh, brought me to to run, and I hope to have an impact on
0: we hear a lot about how we're going to reset with the pandemic and with tourism. Recently, we just had the uh, Ironman competition where we had you know a large group of athletes, you know, because they qualified and we hadn't had that race there in Kona. Uh, but how are you looking at balancing, you know, these issues of um, you know helping to boost our economy and yet sustaining the carrying capacity, you know, of our treasured resources?
4: Yeah, that's a, a very hot topic right now, and I. And it's unfortunately, it's only a hot topic now. It's it's been a simmering topic and it's only come to the forefront after the pandemic when everybody got a reminder of what was. I am a big advocate for um, managing tourism as well as making certain entities or places try to try to make them revenue neutral. And uh, an example would be like Hapuna Beach Park. Billy Kanoy tried to executive order it from the state to the county for better, you know, closer management purposes. That would be a good example of charging parking for visitors to help bolster resources for that kind of park. And I think the same is true for, you know, Waipio is now the new poster child for on this island, uh, but Polaloo for a long time has been a big issue with just hordes of people and so many people use social media that uh, i think we can use similar technology app technology for reservation services and charging to have visitors come and i think that'll manage the visitor aspect as well as make it better for residents and it's not so over you know you're no longer welcome in your own backyard feeling I think we can do that in a lot of places, and, and I feel like there's there's political will to do that. Certainly, for me, it's, it's a priority.
0: We do have the issue of the conversion of, from cesspools to something more environmentally friendly that's hanging overhead. Uh, you know, we we've had the EPA, you know, kind of breathing down our collective necks, just like, look, you know, we've got to do better, and and it is a problem there on the Big Island.
4: Yeah, and you know, it's a tremendous opportunity. Sewer is this amazing thing that really touches, you know, everything is kind of interconnected, right? And sewer is one of these things. It's tied to affordable housing. It's tied to environmental and climate change. It's tied to resiliency it can create jobs and it's also an area that we've failed miserably to access and secure federal grants i really have learned a tremendous amount uh, as president of Hilo bay front trails we've chased a lot of federal grants and we've started to really gain traction on that and i can see there is a pathway to get those grants And I think in the future going forward, they're just the county just approved six grant writing positions, but it's also working with those people in DPW or parks or wastewater department environmental management, those middle layers to help them understand how to get out of these silos and really collaborate. So you have these um, pathways to these grants. And I think as a cost-effective solution, especially in our denser neighborhoods, sewer systems are going to be price competitive and likely cheaper than cesspool to septic conversions on an individual homeowner's basis.
0: And, you know, we're dealing with so many different aspects of climate change, you know, the Big Island is still rebuilding, you know, from uh, some of the flooding conditions that we've had. You know, we've had tsunamis. We've had, you know, the lava inundation. You know, what more do you think Hawaii County should be doing in regard to these changes and these more severe storms?
4: Well, as a battalion chief with the fire department, I'm... (laughs) pretty intimate with uh, the civil defense building and managing a lot of these uh, disasters. So, you know, through smart planning, I know in Oahu and Maui right now, the, the topic of managed retreat is ex- Extremely pertinent. And I really think here on Hawaii Island, with the exception of a few areas like in Kilka, Ali Drive and Kona, much of our population does not face that same shoreline flooding issues like in Honolulu. But we do have that possibility for rain floods. We have lava we need to consider in our planning. And, you know, far as resiliency goes, I think when we rebuild Things like gyms, uh, like the new Hilo High Gym. You know, hopefully when they rebuild the Papa Aloha Gym, they can make that a shelter that's resilient. So if people do, if they do get impacted by flooding or damage due to hurricanes, high wind events, they have a place to go, and uh, we reasonably plan for that. Our civil defense agency has really moved ahead. In the last 10 years, it's really gotten much more effective at communicating to the public. And with smartphone technologies nowadays, I think there's a good information line. So that's one positive, but there's more to be done in that area.
0: The race was very close uh, during the primary. What set you apart from your opponent?
4: You know, that's a great question. You know, it's a funny thing. Just last night, I uh, was canvassing a neighborhood. (laughs) I ran into my opponent and we were laughing like, oh, my God we got 11,000 houses to choose from, and why did we end up right here together? So that's a great point that's always brought up by constituents. My answer is that I have a ton of respect for my opponent. She's she's a wonderful person. But really, um, I've been serving this community for 27 years. I have been um, doing a lot of the things that we talk about been actually doing them for a long time in some cases several decades so I try to build on the network of people my knowledge of the island not only have I lived in Hilo a long time but I've lived in Kailua Kona I've been stationed around the island so I'm familiar with you know when you work in the fire department and you work in Honoka you're invited into people's homes you go to festivals you're in a parade you also you know of course go to emergencies and do so you get integrated in a, in a community while you're stationed there. And um, it's really important to know the different districts and their personalities and their needs. And so really that experience, relevant experience, I'll call it, and kind of a track record of results of getting things done is the big you know difference.
0: Thank you again for your time this morning. You
4: no, know, my my complete pleasure. Thank you, Catherine. Okay. I appreciate it.
0: All righty. Aloha. Take care. That was Hawaii County District 2 candidate uh, Matthias Cush. Uh, Tomorrow we plan to hear from Cush's opponent, uh, Jen Kagiwada. The two were to face off in a forum sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce that was, was going to be held today, but it is now rescheduled for Friday. For more election coverage, check out our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Two new tours, Music and Painting and the Ephemeral Bloom, provide insight and context around works in the permanent collection and special exhibitions. HonoluluMuseum.org slash tours.
0: You are back with the conversation. And while we've got the big island on our mind, we're looking for a little bird native to its forest. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart has the song of the Amaki for you in today's Manu Minute.
1: In Ohia forests all over the Big Island, you can hear the song of the Hawaii Amakihi. It's one of over 50 species known as Hawaiian honeycreepers that all trace their ancestry to a single finch that came from Asia to Hawaii over five million years ago. Amakihi forage for nectar and insects, and sometimes even fly into neighborhoods in Puna and Kona. In traditional Hawaiian culture, their yellow and green feathers were used in beautiful ahu'ula, or feather cloaks, worn by the ali'i. and in stories, their calls were often seen as the scolding voice of reason. Because mosquitoes are not native to Hawaii, many hunter creepers don't have a natural resistance to mosquito-transmitted diseases like avian malaria. But lucky for us, the amakihi is one of the few that does.
2: Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Debra. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture.
0: State this past month declared it would begin a campaign to plant 100 million trees by 2030. Realistic or not? Well, we took the time recently to talk with former First Lady Gina Arioshi to reflect on one of her many uh, campaigns that she took on during her 12 years of service. More than three decades ago, former First Lady Gina Rioshi took on the task of planting a million trees. The campaign, A Million Trees for Aloha, was tied to the 100th anniversary of the arrival of Japanese plantation workers. We sat down with her recently at her Nutuano home to reflect on that monumental effort.
5: Well, that was the 100th anniversary of the first Japanese immigrant coming to Hawaii. And so everybody was doing their projects and, you know, in celebration. And Georgia's governor at that time. And so I wanted to do something, something worthwhile, you know. And the idea of trees, trees have always, you know, you can see my house surrounded by trees, and it was something that I thought would be a good idea. So at that time, Sea Brewer was headed by Doc Byers, and I said, Doc, I said, would you be my co-chair if I did this, you know? And he said, and he was a perfect man for it. And so, because he was all in sync with what we were thinking about trees and the goodness of trees, and he planted a lot of trees too, you know, on, in his, from his company. And so, at first, I really said, okay, everybody, when I got the committee together, I had a big committee to help me. And, you know, cause we, we cannot do things alone. We do things with the help of others. You know, we're on the shoulders of so many people. So you can't get all of the credit, no. So many people were just involved in this project, and that was only why it was successful. And so I had to first, of course, ask my husband if DLNR would help me with the seedlings, you know because I can't plant trees without the seedlings. So I told the committee, we're going to plant five million trees. But they were flabbergasted. (laughs) They never thought I was going to do five million, maybe 500 or maybe 50, they thought. So finally, uh, they got to me and they said, Joan Bixon at that time was my best friend. Joan said, Jean, you know, the boys are worried, so can we bring the number down? I said, oh, okay. Then I said, hey, one million, because at that time, there were one million residents in Hawaii. So I said, let's build, okay, let's plant one million trees for one million residents. You know, that made sense. And so that's, what, that's how that project came about. But I could not have done it without all the four mayors helping me, and we had organizations helping w- statewide and we had we had gone to places to plant trees but for ceremonies and we went with groups to plant you know once we would do that but we also had whenever there was a big circus or any time when you had a had a carnival or big gatherings, we were there, and we were passing out the little seedlings, little trees, which people I made them sign an autograph thing with me that they would plant it and take care of it, and so they had this certificate, and that's how we we went we went doing the whole project, and instead of one year, it lasted two years, but. Every month, we added the trees, and it, we'd hit a million, but we finally did. I, I remember we went to Diamond Head. One of my projects is I had the prisoners help me plant the trees. And they were, of, you know, the prisoners that were safe to be released type. And uh, I was very thankful. So they came and helped me, and we planted trees in Diamond Head. And, and we had to put in a water system to sprinkle. You know, somebody had to water the trees. And unfortunately, just a few survived, they tell me, because people stole the water system. But some grew, very few maybe. And then I know along the Hilo Airport, all those trees are grown big. And in, on Kawai, we did a big planting along the big highway. But Mayor Kunimura at that time had people in charge of watering their trees. It was their tree, you know, that type of thing. I'm sure not all of them survived. We had cherry blossom trees shipped to us from Japan, and so we did plant those. Uh, Lots I sent to Wahiwa, which you will see. Yes, Um, I was
0: just there during cherry blossom season because someone posted something on social media, Kelani Bakery, I think, and I thought, oh, now's my opportunity to go see those cherry blossom trees. But oh, I did not know that. So that's a nice connection, because you're from Wahewa. Yeah.
5: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'm a Waihua girl, graduated from Lilihua. <laughs> yeah, so, so
0: that, that's pretty neat. And then we're sitting here, and there's this uh, lovely um, carving of, yeah. uh, gosh, I think it's what, a Norfolk pine or a Cook pine? But yes, it's a
5: beautiful uh, vase-like. Uh, but it was just given to governor last night at Washington Place from all the Pacific Islander uh, uh leaders, and it was a group that he started way back with Ratu Mara, who was the Prime Minister of Fiji. They were the founders of this group because they are nations and they were never noticed and recognized at that time. And so that's why Ratumara and also George got together and um, they, they, they started this group and so now the groups are still together. And now, you know, as you say, they're, they they've become very important because of our relations with, you know, other countries like China, et cetera. Well then I, I think
0: then then this was a seedling of an idea that Governor Ryoshi had to yes. to To make sure that these island nations um receive the prominence
5: that they deserve a seat at the table to talk about yes what was happening in their region but you know george tells me this story about how when he was in washington dc once he saw these pacific leaders you know just walking around they were not invited to the white house or they had no place to go i mean you know nobody was taking care of them so that's, that's why I think that idea sprang in his mind at that time. Hey, they, these, are, these are not only Pacific Islands. They are nations. You know, they're countries. And so I think that's what gave him that seed for uh, that idea grew from that. Right. And so now we have,
0: now we are where we're at today, and they have, they are stronger.
5: They have more power. They've become so important to the United States now.
0: Tiny nations growing strong under an idea, mm-hmm. thanks to Governor Ryoshi. Yes. That was former First Lady Jean Ariyoshi, who we talked to earlier this summer, who, along with uh, Governor George Ariyoshi, remain active, particularly with veterans or Pacific region issues. And, you know, we checked on the status of those trees that were planted at Diamond Head Crater, and Jean was right. Many did not survive, but there's said to be one that is thriving at the back of the crater. And after spending time with former First Lady Jean Ariyoshi, we got to thinking about, well, if you will, second lady. It's something that both Vivian Iona and Jamie Green know something about, being married to former Lieutenant Governor James Duke Iona and Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, respectively. We will spend the next two days hearing from them about causes that are near and dear to their heart and what they might prioritize if they find themselves as first lady. And that's it for our show today. I'm Catherine Cruz.